What does it feel like to stand in someone else's shoes? To see the world truly from their perspective and to understand their point of view more deeply and fully? This is the question we asked ourselves that led to the creation of Applied Empathy. I'm Michael Ventura, the founder of Subrosa, a strategy and design practice that uses empathy as a tool to solve complex problems for leaders and the organizations they serve. This podcast is an ongoing project that explores questions of identity, perspective, self-awareness, and growth. It's intentionally unfussy about being pristine or perfect. You might hear a ringer go off in the background or a stutter step in a response, because that's what life is really like. It's imperfect. And if we take the time to see it and to understand it as such, we learn that the imperfections are actually quite perfect. This 10-part season was recorded to correspond to the reissue of my first book, Applied Empathy. In it, we will chat with leaders from all walks of life and learn how empathy plays a role in the work they do for their teams and for themselves. I hope it helps open your perspective and illuminates new ways of seeing the world. Jamira Burley is an internationally recognized speaker, social justice advocate, and next-gen social impact consultant. She's on a mission to lead systemic and sustainable change that improves the lives of young people across the globe. She's been named a White House Champion of Change, a Forbes 30 Under 30, a recipient of countless awards and accolades. She's currently head of youth engagement and skills at the Global Business Coalition for Education and an MIT Media Lab Director's Fellow. Damn. Jamira, welcome to Applied Empathy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. Yeah, what a what a what an amazing career you've had in such a short amount of time. It was it was so amazing in the research for this to really go deep and see all of the different threads and all of the different ways things connected for you. And I wanted to start by just asking a question that rewinds the tape a bit. Uh, going all the way, going kind of all the way back to the beginning and reading a lot of the interviews and articles, um, I got a sense of what childhood and your upbringing in Philadelphia was like. But obviously, there's probably o- always more to the story than what you get. And so to start, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what sort of things were going on that planted the early seeds of all of this amazing social justice work that you brought to life. Yeah. Um, again, thanks for having me. And if I think about, uh, it's so crazy, 15 years, so much can happen in 15 years. Um, so I started my work when I, I, I'm a native of Philadelphia. I grew up in West Philadelphia to be specific. Um, I went to the same high school as Will Smith much, many years later than he did, but it was, um, similar to the neighborhood that he grew up in. And I remember growing up in an environment that was just, it felt very much, um, so I was surrounded by a sense of hopelessness, and despite that, there were still people who were thriving and trying to thrive, despite the circumstances of their birth, what they were impacted by, by economic standards or by the violence. And um, I, I just assumed that all of this was like normal behavior, right? That everyone around the world was experiencing very similar things and that there was nothing unique about my experience. Um and so I, I, with that in mind, it wasn't surprising that um, 10 out of my 13 brothers have been incarcerated or that both of my parents were in and out of incarceration. Um, but I think for me, what was kind of the moment of uh, clarity was when my 20-year-old brother, Andre, um, was shot and killed in Philadelphia. I think that moment for me was a reality check of while things may seem like the normal thing, as if a daily occurrence thing that's happening in your community, it didn't make it right. And his death really didn't sit well with me because I felt that it could have been prevented. It didn't, it wasn't something that needed to happen. 
And um, through the learning and growing and trying to kind of heal from that, um, I remember meeting with my principal shortly after my brother was killed and her pulling me to the side because she noticed kind of a change in my behavior. And I remember screaming at her that my brother had been killed. And for some reason, I wanted her to react as, as I was reacting. And a calm just came over her. And she said, she looked at me and she said, well, you can either choose to be a victim or you can do something about it. And as a 15-year-old with no money, <laughs> um, with, uh, with not the ability to vote, as we tell young, right? That's why young people are oftentimes shut out from opportunities that they don't have money, they don't vote, or they can't vote, or they, and they lack influence. And that was the first time that anyone in my life had empowered me to do something about what was going on. Um, and so... As a result, I created an anti-violence program called the Panther Peace Corps because um, Panthers are so nonviolent, of course. And um, <laughs> our job was really to train high school students on how to be violence interrupters. Someone gave me, someone empowered me to realize the influence that I had. And now my job was now, how can I influence other young people to realize that they have the ability to prevent and stop violence, that they don't have to just be the victim and are the perpetrators. So that's kind of like where the arc of my activism came from is through something that happened very personally to now me trying to ensure that other people didn't have to experience the same circumstances that I did. Wow. That's amazing. When you started Panther Peace Corps, how old were you? I had just turned 16. Okay. So you were still in high school and you did that. Yeah. And how was was a sophomore in high school. And by the time my junior year of high school, I had been given a grant to implement that same program across the city of Philadelphia. Wow, that's amazing! Such a such a uh, uh, strong way to start. What has you know kind of gone from strength to strength as a as a journey? Have you stayed in touch with that principal by any chance? Yeah, I'm still close to my principal. I was actually just back in Philly for um, they. My school gives a scholarship every year, and so I will um, help to MC that reception um, that was hosted by my principal. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I feel like. I have a couple people from my youth who really left a, a mark on me and I've, I've tried to make an effort to stay in touch with them and have. Uh, and when I was talking with one of them not too long ago, he said, you know, it's funny, the, the amount of people that we remember as, as uh, teachers and administrators versus the amount of times we are remembered is uh, is always a little out of whack. We we, tr- we 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 hang on to probably more than than the students think we would, uh, and it's nice whenever someone comes back out of the woodwork. And so I thought that was a really nice thing to to know that even if you haven't reached out to someone who left a mark on you at a young age, that if if you if they left a mark on you, they probably remember that too. It was a nice reminder. That's yeah. so true. So true. Um, so, so yesterday was World Pride Day, uh, and this is going to air in about a week, so it won't be too far off from that. Um, yeah, I live about 10 blocks from the Stonewall Inn, and it's a neighborhood that we we love to live in during this time of year because it's always a special day to see equality and love celebrated so freely. And sadly, we don't see that happening as often and broadly as it should be. In the past few years, the volume has definitely gotten louder around issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, why do you think that is? I think we have, so at least from my own perspective, right? I think oftentimes we have lived in a society that um, has put, has caused a division amongst the haves and the have-nots. And even within the ones that have-nots, we're constantly taught to kind of battle each other, to see who can get the resources more or who can fight more for the 10%, the crumbs that the top 1% offers us. And I saw that um, 
more and more in my activism. Like over the last decade and a half, I've had the opportunities to be in rooms and spaces and places where very important people and um, the ideology in which they they give and the ideology in which they feel as if they control kind of the inner workings of society, I think is entirely out of whack. And it oftentimes leaves those who are the most vulnerable um, shuffled to the side or put on the back burner for real resources. And I think it caused a huge tension among those um, within our community who feel like they are are marginalized. Um, and if I think back even to the civil rights movement, right, we know that the LGBTQ movement, um, as well as the women's rights movement, was often seen as a um, a barrier to change for African-Americans because they didn't want to distract people from too many things at once. And so I think we need to get to a point realizing that we can fight for each other all at the same time and that it doesn't have to be about who gets something over the other, but how we can ensure that resources, opportunities, and kind of the opportunity for love, loving each other, um, is seen throughout all of our trajectories of lives, the trajectory yeah. of all of our lives. Right. No, really well said. I totally agree. So we've been seeing this a lot too inside organizations. Some of the companies that we work with, that we're starting to see this guard shift and this change because of things like the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter that have really brought attention to things that have often been swept under the rug. And one of the things I'm noticing as someone who's working inside these organizations is that there are senior leaders who, ex in, excluding the ones that are that are switched on and are actually doing the good work, but the ones that, that, that need the most help, the organizations that have the most challenges, are often challenged because of the demographic diversity inside their ranks, where there are leaders at the top who are at the end of their career and have come up in a very different time and place in the world than the vast majority of their employees who are millennials or Gen X um, and lived in a very different time. And so particularly when I look at millennials inside organizations, they are some of the people who are doing the, the best advocacy work. They're speaking the loudest. They're, they're making sure that change occurs. And I know that you're very connected to the youth community as well. And some of the work you do uh, is really tied into and tapping into them and their mission. So I'm curious about the Global Business Coalition for Education, where you're spending most of your time now. What's the nature of your work there and how is that connecting to, to youth in a meaningful way? Yeah, so um, the Global Business Coalition was created uh, with the ideology that oftentimes businesses give um, businesses engagement with philanthropy and or with global education specifically for the most marginalized is, is very seen as a transactional um, moment. So they write a check, they get an article, they great give great PR, um, but we wanted to really look at how authentically we can engage them in a way that's far beyond just um, monetary and actually ensure that their authentic connection with the education community was seen as one that was helpful and beneficial to the long-term sustainability of young people around the world. And so at the Global Business Coalition, we work with over 200 companies worldwide to really help to educate them, empower them, and connect them with um, organizations on the ground who are trying to close not only the skills gap, but also the educational gap for children in marginalized communities, children in war zones, children who are fleeing um, because of um, different circumstances within their country, um, as well as girls' education, right? And so mm -hmm. um, we look at everything from early childhood education to children on the move, as well as skills education. And our job is to really help to um, ensure that 
um, we're, we're using the business community or working with the business community to ensure that the jobs for the future are reflective of what the workforce looks like, that if there's technology or technical assistance they can provide to local governments and organizations, that that's being um, alleviated. And if there's monetary contributions that can be made, that is happening to the people who are actually have their pulse on, on the young people in their community. Um, and so my job is to not only see the overarching youth engagement strategy, both for the Global Business Coalition, but also our parent organization, um, Their World, which is a charity based out of the UK. Um, but also I run our skills initiative, which it recognized that 825 million young people around the world are on track to not have the skills needed to work in the fourth industrial revolution. And what are those skills? Most of them are soft skills. So they're critical thinking, they're problem solving, um, they're presentational skills, skills that we for a long time told young people to suppress, which is ironic that now they're kind of coming up during the time where technical advances is super exceeding so many people's expectation. And so my connection with the young people is to ensure that they're at the table when decisions about them are being made. They're being directly connected to the companies, the government agencies, and to the bilateral organizations that really have the ability to transform how education looks over the next decade, if not decades, um, and to help train them, right, um, to ensure that they feel comfortable being able to raise their voices in positions of rooms of power. Um, and I also oversee our skills initiative, which is um, how to take the global recommendations of how businesses can help close the skills gap to make it localized and regionalized for um, maximum impact. But outside of that, I do a lot of work. I consult with a lot of nonprofits and for-profit organizations who are trying to engage young people, um, whether that's through um, community campaigns, whether that's through social justice um, issues, or whether that's ensuring that there is a pipeline of leadership moving into these organizations. Um, because I think to your point, a lot of organizations and companies are realizing that if they don't authentically engage young people, it actually impacts their bottom line. So it's not no longer the cute thing to do. It's actually profitable to be socially conscious, to be connected to the local community. Um, and my generation, your generation, millennials, right? We've we've been we've we're kind of an interesting population because we not only want change, but we also oftentimes are willing to work within traditional institutions. And I tell people oftentimes that if they're not ready for millennials, they're definitely not ready for Gen Zers who oftentimes are ready to just burn the entire system down and start over. So it's, it's becoming more, I've been conscious for business leaders, community government leaders to just be more socially conscious, to think about how they can share power in a way that actually creates this, this change we all want and not the change that politicians think we need. Absolutely. And it's, it's so funny to think for someone who maligns the 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 nature of how millennials are so disruptive that they're actually the moderates compared to gen z uh, which is gonna which is gonna change things even more for them when that when they hit the workforce in full totally yeah (laughs) i i guess in a meeting sometimes and i'm just like because i think i think there's a period in our in youth activism that you think you know everything right you think that everyone should just listen to you and I think millennials have moved a little bit past that that stage where we're like, okay, there's something to be said about intergenerational collaboration. There's something to be said about we get it that we want to change. We oftentimes we want to get rid of a system, but maybe we need to work within it to figure out how to do that to dismantle it. And I think young people, Gen Zers, are coming up behind millennials at a time where both of the both of us are extremely conscious, extremely aware of what's going on. And I think that is going to cause the friction that actually creates some revolutionary change that I don't think a lot of previous generations are ready for, but mm-hmm. we are. So that's all. That 
Well, one of the things that that plays a big role in that is politics right now, too. And I know you've had a history involved in in the political sphere as well. Um, And we've got so many youth issues plaguing this country and on our border and and the the topics that emerge are 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 more and more important. I know you worked with Hillary's campaign. Uh, you were awarded the Champion of Change Award from the Obama administration. Uh, you're in the political sphere, seeing things in a way that maybe not everyone is. And so, as you look at the landscape today, and you look at this forthcoming election, and what are some of the social justice topics that you really think are important to hear addressed by candidates? I think what's really big that we are seeing, especially in the last year, is this idea of can we move beyond charity and actually ask corporations and business leaders to pay their fair share of taxes, right? Because we're sitting at a pinnacle moment where oftentimes we uh, overlook the detriment of um, the, the uber wealthy because of what they do for their 501c3 <laughs> or their foundation. Right. And I think we have to get to a point where we have a larger conversation around how these individuals actually contribute to the very problems that now their charity are forced to try to solve. The second thing I would in, in, ensure, and I'm not, I'm by no means an expert in the environment, but I'm a firm believer that without ensuring that we protect the environment and the planet, every other issue won't matter, right? right. If we don't exactly. ensure that there is a place for young people to actually live and thrive and grow, and that we're able to grow the food to actually feed the population that continues to amass in the world, um, I think is a really big issue for me. Of course, criminal justice and mass incarceration is vital. But not just how do we ensure that we eliminate our prison population, but how do we create a retention program? I mean, um, how do we create a transitional program that allows for people to actually get jobs and get reintegrated back into communities? Because otherwise, we're just sending folks who oftentimes have been in prison for decades back into a society in which they don't know. Um, And the last one I would say is, um, well, not the last one, but one of the big ones for me is education. Um, We are we, I mean, education is in dire. Like the U.S. is just trash in regards to our education system, and we're not creating a system in which um, we enable young people to be their own change makers because of their ability, their inability to lack, um, their inability to access um, quality education, um, an affordable quality education, not just through K through 12, but also going into the university sphere. Um, there's so many people who want to get jobs, who want to be proactive, want to be conscious members of society. But because of the circumstances of their birth, their zip code, um, being first generation, they just, the ability to um, supersede their expectations of society are out of reach because of education. Right. Yeah. It's so hard for so many people to hear those things and to stay motivated at times because it's it's tough to stay positive amidst all of that news that we all get bombarded with every day and the turmoil that happens every time you pick up a newspaper or open a browser and without having a way to stay focused and clear-headed it starts to become very difficult to do the hard work and you're doing hard work so what do you do to stay grounded to sort of keep yourself motivated and positive amidst having to deal with heavy, heavy work like this every day? Um, most of the time, I'm not positive. <laughs> I oftentimes <laughs> get into a slump of feeling extremely depressed. I, w- I would say that about a week ago when we saw what was happening at the border, um, a part of me was feeling extremely hopeless, like the idea that there are people, humans in the world that will do this to other humans. Um, but I guess what made me motivated or what gets me motivated is that my friends are 
extraordinary. Um, they're individuals who have exceeded a, a lot of different expectations set upon them and the work that they're doing is inspiring. And so I, I because I'm so still connected to what's happening on the ground and so many different issues, I can see change happening slow and steady. Um, and for instance, before, prior to me going to college, like I had no idea of the immigration crisis or how it played a role in what was happening in communities. But I met a really good friend of mine, Daniel Leone, who um, after 23 years living in America, as a child, he finally got his citizenship less than a month and a half ago. So I think moments like that inspire me to realize that um, there are pockets of change that are happening, not fast enough, not sustainable enough, um, but it's happening. And my job is just to stay the course and when necessary to deviate in a way that actually helps to bring more impact. But it's hard. It's so, it's absolutely so depressing. I used to watch the news every single night and now I can barely stomach to do maybe 30 to 40 minutes of it. And I only do it because I do radio and so I gotta have to do stay up to date on what's going on, but it's extremely depressing. Yeah. And we're living at a time where imposter syndrome too. So it's like, mm -hmm. am I doing enough? Am I making impact enough? Am I why am I not? Why am I also feeling FOMO? So it's a weird time. (laughs) Right. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of people don't realize that it that it is hard work and that you do have to find your moments of inspiration and your ways of picking yourself back up because this, this, this will get harder before it gets easier, you know? Yeah. And for me, I was talking to a young woman the other day at a conference and she was like, you're so successful. And I was like, "Mm, I don't, I don't, I think that that's true. I mean, I think that's true on like very surface levels, but my family still lives in the community in which I grew up in. Like my brothers are still being impacted by the criminal justice system. So for me, there's no way I could ever believe that I have made it. It's the very circumstance in which I was able to be successful and still um, so many people still fall through the cracks, right? My community still looks very similar to the way it did. And so it's not oftentimes about how individuals can be successful. It's about how we can bring entire communities up we can ensure that change is happening across the board um, so that people don't have to be lucky like me. It's just a way of life. Yeah. And you're so early on in a career that is going to have decades more work like this. When you take a moment to step back and you look at the horizon and you imagine yourself in your 60s or your 70s looking back on the work you've done and the career you've built, the legacy you've been able to leave, what's something that you'd like to be able to say you accomplished? I pay back my student loans. <laughs> <laughs> sad but um, very true. <laughs> yeah. What did you say? <laughs> I said that's sad but very true. That that is such a big issue for so many people, and it's 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 an amazing. I know that's not your 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 full answer, but it is a real one, and that's something that we have to pay attention to. It's so true. Um, so what I hope to say is that it's kind of so. Tupac is one of my favorite rappers of all times, and he always there's this quote of his that says, "I may not change the world, but I will spark the brain that will change the world." And that's kind of how I live my life. Right? Is that I am going to speak when necessary, speak when I can. I'm going to elevate the issues that I care about. I'm going to create space for young people when I'm able to. I'm going to open doors, pull up windows. And hopefully, even if I'm not the one making the most impactful change, that I, I, I enabled other people to do the same. So my my goal is always, how do I create pipelines? How do I ensure folks have access? How do I bring more folks into 
the space? How do I remove the table from the space and just include more voices? So that's, that's what I hope I'm remembered for is a person who um, enabled for other people to kind of also use their voice for change. Beautiful. Last question I've been asking everyone as we've done these interviews, what's something you want to understand better? Hmm. <laughs> like an issue, like a could be anything. Could be something about yourself. I mean, the thing about empathy for me that's been so cornerstony to the work we do is that understanding happens at all levels, right? It happens about uh, interiorly with things that we're working on for ourselves. It happens in the world around us. It happens with our relationships. It happens with our work life. So you know, it might be a skill. It might be a emotion. It might be a relationship. But what's something that you just you know, you're curious about right now? You want to know better. I guess it's a question that I come upon myself. <laughs> it comes upon myself every few years, um, especially when I had my quarter life crisis a few years ago. Um, is that I think oftentimes empathy comes about through very personal experience, right? It's something someone saw, something they experienced themselves, something that they told them about. People also are just oftentimes more and more empathetic than others through what they've learned. Um, and it's for me, it came about because of the death of my brother. And I've always asked myself, who would I be had my brother not died, right? Which skills do I have to offer? Who who am I beyond like the circumstances of my birth that I would have been able to offer to the world? And I think um, in a larger context is who would any of us be without these traumatic incidents occurring in our lives that are preventable? And I think that's the point in society that I wanna get to is how do we avoid these very tragic, preventable things from happening to people, so people can actually live out the the, tr- the talents, the beliefs, the ideologies back into the world that isn't oftentimes drowned in by tragedy. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, it makes it makes a lot of sense. It certainly does, and. You know, I know it's hard sometimes to be in the the center of the 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 storm or to see the forest for the trees or all of that sort of stuff. But uh, for for what it's worth, from from one person's perspective, uh, you are changing the world. And thank you for for the good work you do. And thanks for joining me today for a conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it.